The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we can talk to you and call you Father because of your grace. Your grace that reached into the world to draw us who were rebels and on the run to draw us to you in Christ. And we say thank you for that. You have done it. Thank you. And in Christ who shed his blood, the righteous for the unrighteous, we have been brought to God. If we've been brought to you, so we can draw up near to you and talk to you now, praying out loud. We can pray silently. We can pray as we walk through our day. But this morning we gather together as a people, together in your sanctuary, praying, asking you that as we draw up near to you, would you stoop to teach? Would you stoop to make your word clear to us, children, Father, speak in ways that we understand, grow us and mature us. We ask that because we've been told that we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And we want that word to feed us. We want to grow from it. And so stoop and feed, we pray. We want to grow. We want to be mature. We want that because we want you to be honored. We are your people intended to be your reflectors, your, your spokespeople with life and with word, showing the world who you are. And we want to do that accurately because we want to honor you. And when all the creation be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we want that to start now through us. And so we pray, help And if I'm honest, I also admit that part of me and part of us doesn't really want to grow and doesn't really want to honor you as much as we should. And so we ask you to address that and fix it and chase down and call to heal our wandering hearts. We need your grace, Lord. Morning, noon, and evening, we need your grace. And so fall on us now and make us a people pleasing to you. Honor your name, Lord. Teach us, conform us to your image, make us a, a church like we're supposed to be. And use us. We pray that you would use us, Lord, to make Christ known and loved and worshipped. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning we begin a new series in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Two books in our Bible, but originally one combined work that has some of the most familiar stories in it, some of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible, the most well-known and, and most loved stories, particularly by kids. In fact, some of the stories in, in this book are about kids interacting with their God. 
calling of the young Samuel he sleeps in the house of God. If you've read a children's Bible with your kids, Samuel, Samuel, rises up to your mind as soon as you think of these stories. And then there's the, the teenager, David, killing Goliath with a slingshot. And on to the more mature stories of Bathsheba and Absalom. There's a, there's a lot here that we know, very familiar to us. So, so why are we going to spend months and months preaching through it? And it will be months and months, a lot, a lot there, at least two months. It'll be, it'll be more than that. <laughs> why? We, we know these stories, don't we? Well, there's a couple reasons that we're going to spend months and months doing this. There is more here than just story. There's more here than just engaging plot and, and good action, though there is that. What, what boy, I mean, what, what boy doesn't, reading 1 Samuel 14, want to identify with Jonathan and his armor bearer climbing up the hill to fight ten times their number and winning? Or when you read the Second Samuel account of David's mighty men, this, this is a particular passage that always kind of gripped my mind, talks about one of his mighty men there, Eleazar, who when all of Israel fled from the Philistines, that guy stayed with David and fought. Fought so long, it says, the text says, until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. I always captured my mind to think of everybody else running, but this guy and the king standing and fighting until he had a cramp on the sword hilt. And it says, the Lord won a great victory that day through those two guys. I wanted to be one of those guys. What boy doesn't? I mean, I hope you do if you're a little boy. If you're a teenager, I hope you think like that. I want to be that. I want the Lord to win a victory through me as I stand with the king. So there's, there's some great story here, but there's more than just story. There's theology and doctrine in the stories. Which is why we have to preach it. Perhaps because we need to change some of our misunderstanding of these stories. And what we think they're teaching us. David and Goliath is in every children's Bible. It's in every Sunday school curriculum. And it is not in the Bible to teach young boys to be brave. And it is not in the Bible to teach us to run to the battle, as I once heard it taught to me. It's not even in the Bible to teach us to trust God in the battles of life, although that's part of the point. There's more to that story than what we often hear. And that's partially why we need to preach these stories, to correct what we think we know. But also, the, the more that's there, we have to learn this so that we can understand the big, broad picture of the Bible, the, the big flow of the Bible. Before too long, as we read through these books, before too long, David, son of Jesse from Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah, he becomes the main character because it is with him that God makes an important covenant, a deal initiated by God and sustained by God, a promise to place a son of David, a great son of David, on the throne to reign over the people of God and in fact over all of the nations as God's vice-regent, his, his sub-ruler, his helper-ruler in the earth. 
And understanding where that comes from and how it develops is, is very important. And Samuel tells us that story. And as we understand it and understand where it comes from and where it's going, we'll see more of the big picture of the Bible. And I trust it will draw us to deeper worship and greater rest in the God who's behind it all. And that story, in fact, begins in the book of Judges which is why we are in Judges chapter 2 this morning and will be for the next four weeks in other various passages in Judges. I'm going to preach some passages from Judges to set up Samuel. Because that's how God inspired the Bible. Judges leads to Samuel and because that's how God inspired history. The same God who inspires the Bible also inspires history. It's behind it all. And the period of the Judges led up to Samuel. Samuel is actually the final judge. He's the last of the Judges and he appoints the first two of the kings. So he's kind of the bridge. We need to understand what's going on in Judges if we're going to understand Samuel. But that's getting ahead of things a little bit. Set up Judges. Israel came out of bondage in Egypt. In the story of the Exodus. And for 40 years wandered in the wilderness until they finally came up on the east side of the Jordan River and paused there while on one day Moses delivered to them from God the book of Deuteronomy and told them of their past, told them of their, their future, promised that God would be with them to conquer the land if they trusted him and walked with him. And then Moses died. And Joshua led the people across the river, or actually through the river. God parted the river Jordan also. Through the river into the promised land. And largely the book of Joshua is a positive book. Largely. Not completely. It's not filled with perfect obedience and everything great. But largely it's a positive story about how that generation of Joshua and those of his, his generation, how they trusted the Lord and God mostly gave them the, the land. Not completely, but mostly. It's a positive story. But unfortunately, as Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, that generation all died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So we're only three generations removed from Egypt. The one that died in the desert, the one that came in and conquered the land, and now this is the third one. So we're in about the year 1325 B.C., give or take a little bit. We have Israel living scattered throughout Canaan with no central leader. There's, there's no Moses, there's no Joshua, there's no central person in charge. There's no central organization. It's just 12 tribes spread out into the various places that they were given as their, their tribal lands. And most importantly, there's no knowledge of the Lord. Which doesn't mean they'd not heard of him. There are only three generations removed here. Certainly Grandpa had told him about the plagues means there was no familiarity, no connection, no intimacy with the Lord. They knew of him, but did not know him in this sense. They had hearts far from him. And with that, let me begin reading in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Judges 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord 
and serve the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The word of the Lord. That's our text this morning, which I'm going to unpack in two observations. Taken as a whole, though, together, before, before I break it apart, taken as a whole together, here's the main point that, that we're working towards. And, and really, it's sort of the main point for what we're going to be doing in the whole book of Judges, the, the five times that we're there. So here's, here's my main idea. God's partial blessing of the judges prepares us to receive his final blessing of Christ. His partial blessing of the judges prepares us to receive his final blessing of Christ. So there's something preparatory here in Judges that's partial. And so it should leave us saying, ah, uh, ah, uh, the partial, partial blessing. We need something else, and it's preparing us for something else. So we're going to work towards that this morning with two observations. Look with me at verse 11, where we find the need for God's blessing. The need's introduced here in verse 11. So our first observation, which is a tough one to consider. I'm warning you up front. First point, God is provoked to anger when his people abandon him. 
God is provoked to anger when his people abandon him. His people. We're not talking about all the, all the people of the nations. We're talking about those who are in some relationship with him where they would self-identify, he's my God, they're my people. When we, those ones, when we abandon him, see other people haven't even come to him to abandon him. When we walk away, God's provoked by that. Let's see if we can find this in the text. And frankly, how can we miss it? Verse 11, it immediately tells us that what they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not just wrong or unfortunate or inappropriate. Evil. That's a strong word. What did they do that was evil? I mean, they didn't commit mass murder or anything, at least not yet. That comes up later. They did evil. What was it? Well, there are six phrases that make it impossible to miss it. And they are structured in such a way that with some bracketing that kind of focuses us in right in the middle. The first phrase end of verse 11, they serve the Baals. To serve is to worship with sacrifices and offerings. They serve the Baals, plural. Different expressions of this one Canaanite god, Baal. He was, he was a god of the land around them. They served him in end of verse 13, same phrasing, served the Baals and also the female goddess Asherah. They turned to idolatry. Turned to idolatry by turning away from the Lord. If you, you see the beginning and the end is served the Baals and if you bump it in a notch at each level, so the second and the fifth phrase, they abandoned the Lord. Beginning of verse 12 and also in verse 13. They abandoned the Lord. And then bumping it in one more time again, bracketed right in the middle, they went after other gods from among the gods of the land and bowed down to them. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this two-part turning away from the Lord and to the Baals, the gods of the land, that is evil. It's treason. It's adultery, to use another word in the Bible often, which is implied by the word whoring down in verse 17. That's, that is, if you ever use that word in common language, you're, you're getting somebody's attention. That's a, that's a pointed word. It tells us how God feels about this. And look how he responds to it. End of verse 12, they bowed down, it says, and he is provoked to anger. 14, because of this, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It's a word of fire. Anger kindled. This is a provocation. It's a, it's a sharp stick in the eye. He's provoked by this evil which leads to great trouble. Verse 14, He gave them over to plunderers, sold them into the hand of their enemies so that they could not withstand their enemies. And notice, it is not just passive, as if God said, I'm selling you off to them and I'm walking away. They'll do with you what they will. It's actually active. 
Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, just like he said it would be. Like he warned them and promised them it would be. No wonder they were in terrible stress. This is, this is God against them. They turn away from Him. They abandon Him and turn to the gods of the nations, provoking Him to anger. And so His hand is against them. He abandoned Him and provoked Him to anger. Shame on them. Yeah, shame on them, sure, okay. But realize something. We're reading about what they did, what happened to them, but everything in the Bible is written to us for our instruction, for our warning, for our correction. So take this, Christian, and be warned by it. Take care, Christian, take care, church, in the words of Hebrews, that there not be a sinful, unbelieving heart in you that wanders away from the living God. The warning of the church in Hebrews. It wouldn't look quite the same as this. We, we don't have a physical land that we occupy. We don't have physical idols that we'd be tempted to bow down to. It wouldn't look quite the same. But the danger still rests in front of each of us. We still ourselves have hearts that are prone to wander, as the song says, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Abandonment is not an issue that they faced back then and failed in. Shame on them. It's an issue for us. How so? Well, sometimes it looks bold and blatant. I probably don't need to comment much on that because you've seen it. And, and if, if that's you, if you're sitting here right now in bold and blatant turning away from God, perhaps it's hidden from the outside world, but you know, and as I'm talking right now, you're feeling like you're sitting on the hot seat. Then I, I'm thankful and I pray that God is, is poking you and saying, you have abandoned me. And that secret thing, that you, that lifestyle, that behavior, that's not hidden. It's blatant abandonment. Maybe that's you. But I'm not going to talk much about the blatant and bold ways that we abandon God because it's probably more common that subtle abandonment is our issue. That's what we need to think about a little bit. Most of the time, for Christians... Our abandonment of God still looks very Christian. We still come and we sit in church. We still affirm the proper theology, still meet with other Christians, still, you know, when people ask us to pray for their, their issues, we, we still pray. Because... Abandonment, at least at the start, before it becomes big and blatant and bold and can be seen in all of our behaviors, abandonment first begins in the heart. 
And so we still find ourselves worshiping Him with our lips, but with hearts that have now become far from Him. It's a very subtle thing. So we need to think about this. Abandonment at the start is a turning in the heart away from God to some other supposed God in hope, in desire, in love, in trust and dependence. Not yet with with our words, not yet with our actions, but first in here, in a very subtle way. Oftentimes, the other entity that you give that trust and hope and affection and love to, it, it can be a good and great thing, a job. Jobs are good. Jobs are gifts from God. Jobs are great idols. Jobs rob our affections and steal us away from God. They can, at least. We turn ever so subtly from a life that looks like this. Oh, God, to you I look. Upon you I am dependent. You are my hope. You are the one I wait on. You are the one I trust and to deliver. We, we turn from that saying, He's God, of course, still, yes. But man, I better get to work because that's what really is going to deliver me. So subtle. So you check yourself for such subtle things, not by asking intellectual questions, do I still affirm the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith? You don't, don't ask on that level. And don't look at your behaviors, am, am I sitting in church right now? But look at your heart, and especially look at your emotions and affections. Are you most pleased, most content, when some particular circumstance goes your way, and conversely, most distressed, most worried, angry when it doesn't. Or is your heart in the same state of contentment either way, when the circumstance goes your way or doesn't? Because as you contemplate God's goodness to you, no matter what the surrounding circumstances, you're fastened to Him. Which one is it? If you're fluctuating with the circumstances, that might be an indication to you that you've drifted. You've drifted out of the harbor. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating some emotionless life. What I'm trying to do is alert you to your emotions and say what they are telling you. If your emotions are like this, you are probably a ship on the high seas rather than like this, safe in harbor. Both are affected by water, but one's radically different. If the circumstances cause your emotions to rise and fall, you're probably looking to the world to sustain you. Which, oh, when I look at my own life, the one that, the emotion that I most notice that is the, the greatest sign to me is the emotion of worry. When I look at my life, 
perhaps you look at yours. When I find myself worrying, right around there, I, I know from experience now, I know that right around there somewhere is something that I have turned to, have trusted, and is threatened. And I've departed a little bit. I've abandoned in some degree God who is steadfast and sure. Maybe what you need to do, of all your emotions, look at worry and look at fear. That might indicate something to you. Are you cold towards Christ in your heart? And do you walk through the day reacting to what comes at you from all of the world around you? Fundamentally, that's showing you something. Showing you where you're resting and where you're not resting. Our job, our privilege as Christians is to live so near to God that every morning we rise up, draw into His presence, and find an anchor for our souls. And, and therefore, while the ship may bob, we're anchored. To have a hope... To have, to have a, a focus as we walk through the day. And it is so easy and it's so subtle to drift and to abandon Him. It's a tragedy. It is difficult for me to express it because it is so subtle. I can talk to you. I, I can interact with you in the hallway. And I can say all of the words that are proper and I can espouse all the theology that is correct. And you never know that my heart is, is just a little bit drifted away from God. It, the only indication would be that there's just a certain, a certain coldness. It's so subtle. I wish I could be more, more focused and more exact with you on this, but all I can do is plead with you to ask yourself and to, to stop and stand before God and say, Am I near to you? close to you, tight to you, warm with you, or detached, drifting, abandoning. To abandon him is to rip out your own heart, Christian. And it's great evil. He calls it evil. And it's provoked to anger. Now that, that's hard for us. That's hard for us Christians to kind of get our minds around because we, we fundamentally approach God now thinking of Him as a God of grace and a God of love, which is proper. It's proper to think of Him like that. But it is also proper to realize there is nothing fundamentally contradictory in love and anger. In fact, sometimes love requires anger. If there is great evil afoot, love would require that anger vehemently oppose that evil. If it's going on in this situation, there is great evil afoot. Abandonment of God. 
As you depart from him, you are provoking him. Christian, you are provoking him. Now, he has mercy. He's a God of love. We'll come to that in a moment. But do you realize the dynamic that the the severity of the Lord drives us out where the, the beauty and the goodness of the Lord draws us in? But to be drawn in, you first must be driven out. You must see there is a provoking here when one says to God, I find myself drifting and I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm fine with turning away from you and replacing you with the idols of the land. That's provocation. Is that you? It is evil. He is God. He deserves our all. He is entitled to first place in our lives. He is our creator, our sustainer, and our savior. And it's self-destructive. There are no other gods. Nothing else does deliver. It's false hope. So our first observation here, that God is provoked to anger when his people abandon him. So stop and ask, are you drifting? Are you still with him, worshiping with lips, but with hearts far from him? Is that you? And if so, repent. Repent. Come back. God is merciful and eager to receive us. And in fact, what the passage continues to tell us is that remarkably, he's willing to act before we even turn. Which leads us to the second point. The second observation picks up what I think is a rather surprising turn in the passage. I'll state it here it is. In mercy, God acts, that's A-C-T-S, God acts and will act to deliver his wandering people. God acts and will act to deliver his wandering people. Despite the fact that this is evil, and though he's angered, God yet is merciful to us and he acts. There's a surprising turn right in verse 16. Explain a little more by verse 18. 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And as 18 elaborates, he saved them from the hand of their enemies for, because the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. What a turn that is. Completely unexpected. As you're reading through the end, down through 15, you have, you have one posture that then unexpectedly turns, then he changes and he raises up judges to save them. He's the one who delivered them, and then he changes and raises up judges to save them. Now, what's a, a judge? We need to understand what a judge is. So get, get the whole picture here. A judge is not a courtroom person. A, a judge is not somebody who is, is like adjudicating a legal situation. 
Judges were people who had particular local authority to rule in order to create peace and justice. In a particular time and place, amongst the people and in relation to the outside people. So this is kind of like a political and kind of like a military leader. And it's particular in local areas for particular times. And sometimes throughout the book of Judges, some of the judges can overlap because they are operating in different areas. And God, it says twice, raised up these judges at different times. And it says in verse 18 that he was with the judge. So he's empowering the judge and empowering him so much so that he can say of this judge that the Lord delivered. In all the days of the judge, the Lord delivered. So it's the Lord winning a victory, the Lord delivering his people again through the judges that he empowers. He delivers his people from distress and affliction even while they are still against him. That is a God of mercy. Do you see that? If you, if you come through the first point, and it, and it hits you a little bit, it hits you a little bit, some of the severity of the Lord, there, there's a provocation here, abandoning anger, then, then see the second point. That even in the midst of that, God Himself is merciful. And draws up the affliction short. He he cuts it short. Not because the people changed. That's abundantly clear. Not because they changed. Because God himself decides, I cannot bear for my people to suffer. Now, it doesn't say how all of this works, but theologically what's going on. They have committed a great evil. I cannot bear for them to suffer. Who will pay for this evil? I'll take that myself. I'll put it in my pocket. And I'll walk down through time for a number of centuries until I can nail that to the cross. That's what's going on behind the scenes here. Not stated. It just says that somehow in the midst of their great evil, God had mercy. Moved by pity as He looks on His people suffering in distress, He had mercy. What a God who does not say, you abandon me, when you come back, then we'll talk. He says, I'm going to chase you down and have mercy because I cannot bear to see you suffer. I love you that much, says this God of mercy. There is great offense. I'll take care of that. So men and women... In your abandonment, and when you see this, then you can maybe own up to the abandonment, because perhaps some of you earlier were saying, not me, not me, I don't want that. Maybe you can own up to that and say, oh, there is a place for it to go. I I can go back to God, and He'll take me in mercy. So own your abandonment, and see this God of great grace. Kindness 
and the mercy of God here to pity such a small people like us and then to act to relieve us. Now, apart from this particular setting or the types of settings in which we are suffering under our our self-inflicted distress, there's a truth here that applies to life. And I know some of us here right now, you are in the midst of great distress that has nothing to do with you abandoning God. There is distress that comes from the fact that we are not abandoning God. We just read the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3, where so many people there are distressed and afflicted and oppressed because they're holding tight to God. So there's, there's distress in life that God is eager to relieve that's not this particular kind. See that and go to Him for mercy. He is eager. He has ears to hear your cries. He's moved to pity by your groaning, whatever the cause of the groaning. He's a God of mercy for you. Run to Him and ask for it. Plead for mercy on the grounds of His love for you. But do so aware of the bigger picture. Because if He blesses you and relieves you of your circumstances and defeats the enemies that are afflicting you, causing you distress, and if in your abandonment of Him you have found the world to be a hard friend, and He acts in mercy to relieve you of that, it hasn't actually addressed the main problem yet. Because what's the main problem? Which is going to show itself tomorrow. The main problem is, again, verse 17, and again, verse 19. God acts in mercy to deliver an abandoning people, and they say, thank you, and tomorrow walk away again. The main problem is not that I wandered. The main problem is that I have a heart prone to wander. And if God in mercy is going to actually address my deepest and my most profound need, He's going to address that heart prone to wander and make it new and tie it with fetters to Him. So He has acted to deliver, and He does act to deliver, but what, there's, what this is doing in the, in the book of Judges and in the Bible as a whole is it's pointing us towards something. This is a great blessing. He raises up judges to deliver them. It's a great blessing and it's a partial blessing. Yeah. You should read judges. You should read this. You should think through God's merciful acting in your own life and and say, thank you. I need more. If you take what is written here, you have this elation of God's gracious act and the growing frustration with the incompleteness of that gracious act. 
and there's a seed planted, I need more. There must be something else. When the judge died, the people abandoned God and were even more corrupt than their fathers. There's a cycle. Down, down, down. All throughout this book of Judges, there's a cycle. The people sin. God afflicts them. In mercy removes the affliction and appoints a judge and saves them and blesses them. And the people say thank you and then walk away again and provoke him to anger. And he afflicts them. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The cycle of the period of judges is supposed to leave us warned about the evil of wandering. Thankful for the mercy of God to act to deliver us and plain sick of the propensity of our own hearts to keep on wandering. Sick of it. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, most sensitive readers are saying, what on God's green earth is going on there? Horrible things. Somebody fix that. And we're meant to read that and not say, man, were they messed up. But to say, I, like them, have a heart prone to wander. And I get up in the morning drifting. Somebody fix that. I don't need just the mercy of God to fight and defeat the enemies out there. I need the mercy of God to fight and defeat the enemy in here. This is my real one. Somebody fix that. And no God-empowered human leader, no great judge is capable... O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this problem? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. On the cross, Christ has come to do something remarkable, to break this cycle. And so, Christian, he is put on the table in front of you, not partial, vast, full blessings in his mercy and grace, capable of changing you. And he's doing it. In mercy intervening in your life even before you take the first step. He's doing it. You are not the same person that you were when He saved you. And you won't be this person next year or five years from now. He is breaking in you the cycle. 
cutting out the propensity to wander. You still have a sin nature. Yes. But he's renewing it day by day. He's fighting to claim you. That's a great thing. It's a great thing. This pattern here is pointing us towards that. And we, we can read it now from centuries later and say, thank you. Thank you for me and thank you for us that we need not replicate this. And in fact, won't. All because of the grace of God. Not because we are better people than they are. We aren't. But all because He has acted at the cross. When Christ came and died, He broke the power of sin over your life and began a work of renewal. Put the Spirit in you and is making you new. Christian, you should bless God for that. May the severity of the Lord drive you out from poke you, prod you, awaken you to the fact that you abandon. And may the mercy of God that has acted to, to change that circumstance and then to change the whole situation, the mercy of God then draw you into Him and make you a worshiper of Him. To give you great joy in Him. And do not, do not, do not yawn and walk out of here more information acquired. Brothers and sisters, no! This is a good God whom you desperately need and by His own accord has drawn near to you. Do you love Him? He has first loved you. Do you want Him? He first sought you. Do you trust Him? He first showed Himself trustworthy. We are engaged with the God of the ages. He desperately wants a people. He desperately wants a holy people. A kingdom of priests. He has made that possible. He speaks to you calls you to Himself, even right now, perhaps through my voice, perhaps through these printed words, perhaps through the Spirit just prodding you, He calls to you and says, come and find a life here. Stop wandering. He's the God of the ages. All that you need, all that you were made for, While it is evil to turn away from Him, it is right and holy, joyful blessing to draw near to Him and hold fast to Him. Come. 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 
this book of Judges, in, in a lot of ways, is a tragedy. But we see it in the big picture. We see it's pointing us to a God of mercy who is good and who has acted to save you. Come and trust him, brothers and sisters. Let me pray. God Almighty, we dip our toe into a sea. You are vast and eternal. We're talking about something you did thousands of years ago. But it tells us something of who you are in all your vastness. You are a God who will not be second. And who in mercy and in grace has acted to assure that you are first. For our good, thank you. We're about to take in our hands the cup and the bread and see in it what you have done to save, not just to save us out of bondage and Egypt, but to save us out of spiritual bondage to sin, to break our propensity to wander, to renew us in faithfulness. So Lord, I pray that as we take these elements in our hands now, as my brothers and sisters here participate with you and with one another at your table, Would you call wayward ones back? Would you reinforce in us what we affirm and and believe? Help us with our unbelief, though. Reinforce in us the conviction that you are good and that you are life. That to wander from you is evil and folly both. And do so, Lord, by showing us the greatness of your mercy in the cup and in the bread. You taking on yourself the evil that you found in us. Do that here, Lord, with your people and make us pleasing to you, I pray. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.